this is Annie, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. And today we have another bit, another bit, another bonus episode for you. A bit of a bonus. (laughs) A bit of a bonus. Um, And trigger warnings for today right off the bat, uh, sexual assault, abuse, and child molestation. Um, And yeah, this is kind of similar to one we had recently with uh, Renee and Rebecca. We discussed the uh, importance previously of law enforcement in dismissed cases or dismissing cases. But we didn't get into what happens if a survivor decides to go to trial. So we brought in two people to speak to those things. Yes, we have today an episode of two interviews, one with Justin, an ex-detective, and with another Samantha. Another Samantha, not uh, me. Yes, <laughs> who worked for three years as a prosecutor in Florida. And you heard them, uh, clips from them in past episodes. As we were doing these episodes, to be honest, this Samantha and I— Me! Yes, we— both thought, well, with all these downsides, why would anyone ever report? And we generally like to end on something positive, and we were having trouble finding that positive thing. But then you, Samantha, stumbled on this Facebook video from Justin, who specializes in trauma-informed training. Yeah, I was really excited to see law enforcement or a person of law enforcement come out and become an advocate for trauma-informed training because it's so rare that it comes out of law enforcement. It's usually typically out of, like, people in the world of counseling and yeah. or um, that type of level of treatment. So when he came, when I saw this video, I was so excited that he was a strong advocate and a strong ally for victims. I also got in touch with a lawyer so we could go into what happens when a survivor actually goes to trial. We're going to be hearing from both of them throughout this episode. So let's get into these interviews. My name is Justin Portman, and I am a retired police detective from the city of West Valley City in Utah, which is the active suburb of Salt Lake City. I was a police officer for 15 years. I spent eight years in patrol, so responding to um, every type of problem that you can imagine. And in this department, we responded uh, a lot. We did the most amount of cases per officer per year in the state, so we were extremely understaffed. Wow. You could go from a vehicle burglary to a gang shooting in no time flat. Um, and then I went to detective, where I spent seven years in the special victims unit. During that time in the special victims unit, I was assigned just about 1,200 cases. Um, so if you do the math, that's a lot of cases to burn through, if you will. So those are adult rapes, uh, mostly child sexual assault, uh, child abuse, elder abuse, that sort of thing. So it's a pretty heavy um, emotional type of caseload, if you will. Right. During this time, I went through a change, and that change is starting to happen across the United States, actually around the world. Um, And it's a very exciting time. It's also a very frustrating time for our public. 
and a frustrating time for the police as well. One of the reasons that we asked you to come on, um, I saw a video on Facebook because I get all of these alerts and I love it, that talk about some good changes that have been happening. Um, and I kind of wanted you, if you can explain, what do you do today? <laughs> so I left police work five years before retirement. So I gave up all that so that I could go out and train and consult on trauma-informed investigations and procedural justice for our victims of crime within the justice system. Can you explain? I have a mouthful. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. So I was going to say, can you explain what trauma-informed investigation is, what that actually is? Yes. So in and of itself, the two words um, trauma-informed is confusing as all get out. There are numerous amounts of definitions to what trauma-informed means. But I kind of take the general version of everything, which means you are informed about what trauma is and how it presents itself, and you're informed about it. So that's kind of where I go. Most of my stuff is changing the places within the justice system that can be trauma-informed. And when you talk to a prosecution, you'll see some of that a little bit more. But our um, accused have the right to cross-examinate the accuser. So that is it's confrontational. That's not trauma-informed. And that's just one little example, but wherever we can make the changes we need to. So when I first went into the special business, let's say year one, I was actually assigned to the property squad. And usually that is where guys will cut their teeth learning the system of screening cases and doing things differently than what they were out on patrol. And I had done that for six years, not six years, six months, and there was an opening in the Special Victims Unit. And what happened is I found my life calling. I would go home at night, and my daughter was eight years old, and I had just talked to an eight-year-old about horrible things that had happened to her. But I was being trained by the older guard of the Special Victims Unit. We are cooked as a society, um, and especially as police officers, about what sexual assault looks like, what are, what's normal, what's not normal. How do people present? Most of them are false, right? That's on our head. Mm. Um, and I started the exact same way. And when we would approach the case with a survivor, um, there were certain ways that we did things that were not trauma-informed, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, they closed out the cases fast because we had a huge caseload and we don't have enough staffing. So I was doing the exact same things as everybody else. And when I was investigating um, child sexual assault, I was a little bit more focused, 
we had a little bit more training on that. But it seemed like as soon as somebody would get um, upper teens, young adulthood, past 18, they they just turned into liar, liar, pants on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't sitting great with me, but there wasn't any way around it. We didn't know. I would come in on Monday morning. I would look in my box, and maybe there would be a sexual assault exam report in there. Um, and I would look through it. And what we do is we would call up our victim, and we would say, hey, um, I just read through your report. I'm sorry this happened to you. And I see that you don't have a, you're not remembering a lot. There's alcohol involved, which happens a lot. Um, actually, alcohol is a tool um, that can be used, can be used to facilitate sexual assault. And I go, you know, there's witnesses here. Could you give me a list of all the people that were there? The officers didn't do that. Um, well, there I'm seeing they got one or two, but there was 20 people there I need to talk to. Um, and can you give me that information by maybe Thursday? Uh, unless you don't want to keep going forward. Well, I was planting all this doubt in their brains, and I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I was putting these huge tasks on somebody who had just been raped for health sake. So I tell them, you know, if I don't hear from you by this date, I'm going to close out your case. But it can be reopened if you feel like you want to come forward later. Well, you know, Monday morning would come around. The next Monday, I hadn't heard from them. So I closed out their case, um, refused to cooperate, case closed. And that was it. Mm-hmm. I'd never hear from them again. And that first year, I was, we had detectives of about 36. And like I said, we were very active, homicides, everything else. And I was awarded investigator of the year because I was making a lot of arrests with the kid cases, but turning through them really fast, mm. getting rid of cases. But I was closing out all the assault ones. Right. Um, a couple of years go by, year or two, and I go to a training that was for child sexual assault, but an attorney was there teaching on the neurobiology of trauma in a breakout session. So if you've ever been to big conferences, they have these little breakout sessions. Well, I wanted to go to another one, but I was a social butterfly as well, and I was talking in the hall too long, and the class I wanted to was filled. But I knew my sergeant was patrolling the hallway, <laughs> so I quickly, <laughs> I quickly ducked into the neurobiology of trauma and sat in the back. Right. And she was actually talking about adult cases, not children cases, and was explaining all the things that I was closing the cases for was actual evidence psychological evidence that something horrible has happened to this person. So what it did was took everything and flipped it on its ear. Everything was opposite. So if uh, she had gaps in her memory, I would go, oh, she's just making stuff up and she's just hitting the highlight. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But no, that was actually something very bad happened to that person. Right. And I went, huh, interesting, okay. But I went back to my desk and started going through my cases in regular time. But I started seeing the stuff that she had mentioned. Like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> well, about a month later, I went and saw her again. She was presenting in Salt Lake. And then it, it happened. Um, I had my first moment of aha and guilt. Mm. I started going, well, everything that the system is declining these cases of these brave men and women that have come forward is actually evidence that something happened. Right. Of the rapes that had biological evidence collected, only 6% of those were being prosecuted. Wow. Um, if you've read the book Missoula, Missoula, Montana, John Krakauer's book, came in at 4%. Um, prosecution rate and the Department of Justice came in and started swinging and so we had a 6% and Violence Against Women International has a a study from 2012 it came back that nationwide we were at 5.6% of the people that reported we know that people report rape less than 30%. Yeah. 6%. Can you imagine if you're, if Atlanta, where you guys are from, mm-hmm. had a prosecution rate of 6% of homicide? Mm-hmm. Exactly. What would your public do? So we had a 6% prosecution rate. Right. Um, and so we installed this protocol did some training with the detectives. We did all sorts of different things with a full board, uh, institutional review board study from Brigham County University. So in a year, we went from 6% to 24%, which is a 400% increase with small numbers. But honestly, guys, 24%? That sucks! (laughs) Exactly. But, But we can do better than that right and so that's what's been starting to change around the country in law enforcement is we're starting to learn about this trauma stuff and this trauma stuff we actually have been taught about on and off in the police academy however in a different area so what that means is when we train we train most of the stuff that's on our bat belt for safety, mm-hmm. but we do things during um, firearms training that is to help with trauma, hmm. but we haven't been giving that to our victims. We haven't recognized it in them. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge disconnect that can actually start changing tomorrow. Um, it's not going to be an overnight thing, but it can start changing tomorrow. Right. Um, police culture is extremely hard to change. Um, 
but it needs to start now. And there's so much positive things happening. Also part of that study was how did our victim feel after the interview? Not after the investigation was done, but from report to interaction with detectives. And we had a 97% positive feedback from our victims. Was this after the trauma-informed or before? Right, after the trauma-informed interview. Okay. Not after the investigation was completed, because some of them would not uh, be prosecuted, and that could certainly change it. But we wanted to know how they felt up to that point, if they felt heard, listened to, uh, that sort of thing. Right. And it was 97% positive. So that is indications that we're doing something right. Right. Sadly, we're not going to prosecute every single case. It doesn't mean that our rapist is not guilty of it. Most of them are. Um, Really, false reports, tiny, tiny bit. Um, Two to eight percent is what they say. Out of my 1,200 cases, I had two that I proved. Wow. Probable cause is a high standard that we have to meet legally. Right. Um, civil standard is 51%. Right. Our victim could be and should be filing lawsuits against their um, their suspect. What we need to figure out, I think, is what justice looks like to our victim is going to be different from everybody. It's like a fingerprint, like your trauma. Everybody's right. different. Right. Um, and maybe it's procedural justice and counseling. Right. Maybe it's not the justice system. Right. Maybe it's the civil system. Maybe it is the justice system, and we're going to try our best. I, one of my survivors, would also be happy to talk, went through the system that is not trauma-informed. She went through the interview process and stuff that was. Um, she was... It was an alcohol-facilitated sexual assault at her home with her husband in another room with some other friends and stuff. And um, DNA evidence, everything. And it went for three years waiting for trial. And then at trial, um, the jury came back not guilty. Oh my goodness. I was devastated. I was actually in another state training. It was just this last year. And you know what? I got a text messages checking on me from my victim. <laughs> wow. That's procedural justice. Right. She was devastated, but she knew she was heard all the way through. That's awesome. And she got to say her piece. Right. Um it's sad our jury pools are not the as educated. That's kind of what you guys are doing right now for us, which right. is beautiful. So usually who brings me in are nonprofit victim organizations. Right. Um, paid for by federal grants. So federal grants don't pay you a lot, but it's more about the passion and getting out to small areas and talking about it for me. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes the police department will, and they're starting to do that a little bit more now. 
But police departments, sadly enough, they spend what little training money that they have towards um, towards things that they get sued for. Our survivors are victims of sexual assault around the country. Their cases have been, in a way, well, I don't know if that can even mince words, mishandled. And, you know, I did some of the same thing. I didn't know what I didn't know. But sometimes little civil lawsuits like that will help change the system. Uh, So that's happening in bigger scales around the country at this point. There's a big class action lawsuit in Austin, Texas, where I think it's seven or eight Jane Doe's are suing the sheriff's department, the police department, and the district attorney's office. Um, or declining their case. Mm. When you think about this, with a prosecution rate of 4%, 5.6%, 6%, even 13%, most of the people that report sexual assault are female. Mm-hmm. When you prosecute only a single digit percent of the cases, comes out to be gender discrimination. So there's a lot of change starting to happen. We talked a little bit about or you mentioned earlier about the B2 movement, mm-hmm. which has been nothing but good um, for our systems. Of course, people are being freaked out and there's uh, well, men that are overreacting to it. Um, thinking that they can't do this, that, or the other. Um, consent. <laughs> it's, not, it's not hard. Right. However, the Me Too movement has only scratched a tiny, tiny bit of the surface. If you look at the surveys and the studies, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right. The amount of false reports of other cases equals out to be the same as sexual assault. Um, so false burglary cases or insurance fraud, same percentage. False um, crashes of cars for insurance, same thing. Um, and some of it done criminally. Some of it is done because of um, mental and psychological problems. Right. If it's something that the victim feels like they want to talk out through a mediator and not go through the other stuff and at least get an acknowledgement or some sort of closure or an agreement, um, whether it's monetary or counseling or what have you, that may not be a bad thing either. They, it depends on what justice looks like to you. Since you're talking to and uh, your listeners are more on the jury pool, the way neurobiology happens and way it presents to people is counterintuitive to what we were raised to think and see. And the first person that somebody discloses sexual assault to is so important to the system 
and to their um, healing, the victim's healing. And, you know, you hear the term starting by believing, that's good, um, things like that. But really, just show some empathy and don't question about what happened. Um, our suspects, if you will, are pre- are, can be predators. And they work very hard and they're very good at what they do. And people think that the victims are lying. They were set up. They were groomed for the most part. Right. Um, and rape is not something that happens in back alleyways often. Right. Um, it's mostly um, acquaintance rapes. And so give them the love that they need and hear them out. Awesome. That would be the big thing. We agree full-heartedly. And since we are talking to the potential jury, let's talk about what a trial might look like. We'll get into that after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So what happens if, after filing the police report, a survivor does decide to go to court? Um, Yeah, and here's Samantha, who is going to speak more on that. I'm Samantha. I was a prosecutor for three years down in Florida. Um, I did primarily felony prosecutions, um, which included drug cases and assaults and sex crimes and all of that stuff. I would say out of the sex crimes cases that came through our door, Maybe 10 to 15% were the adult cases. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the majority of sex crimes that prosecutors deal with, at least in the jurisdictions um, I was in, were child molestation cases. So typically, at the point where a prosecutor's office is going to get the case or be assigned the case, um, is after the initial report has been submitted by the victim. Um, All of those initial steps by law enforcement have taken place. The you know, a a rape kit, potentially interviews, um, investigation. The investigation might still be ongoing when it's submitted to the prosecutor's office, but typically there's enough um, to substantiate an arrest um, and charge the person, um, the perpetrator. So um, at that point, the prosecutor's office really takes over and it really becomes a legal situation at that point moving towards trial. in the office that I used to work in, and I think it's probably true in most offices, there's some sort of victim liaison. Um, we used to call them a victim advocate right. signed. Um, typically, they're people who have a social work background, some sort of experience, and they really coordinate um, between the victim and the prosecutor assigned to that matter um, to keep the victim in the loop about the case, what's going on, answer any questions that they may have, and that sort of thing. So from the point of the initial charging to a trial, um, sex crime matters tend to be more serious. So they can take um, quite quite a bit of time to actually go to a trial. I would estimate probably about a year, um, give or take. It can depend on a, a number of factors, how busy the courtroom is that that case is assigned to, um, other types of trials that might be in the pipeline ahead ahead of it, um, and just availability of witnesses, availability of law enforcement to come testify, 
Um, and also sometimes what is best for the victim. Now, in most jurisdictions, there is the defendant does have a right to something called a speedy trial that they can invoke, which would speed up the process of the trial, um, usually 60, 90 days, something of that nature. In reality, though, very few people um, invoke that right to a speedy trial. Um, it's It just generally doesn't benefit a defendant to do oh, really? that. Huh. I would have thought the opposite. The they other. usually want to conduct try to get as much discovery as possible. Right. And what is discovery, just for people to understand? Sure. That's basically the exchange of information. So the defendant side is going to want to see every, all the information that the law enforcement has, the prosecutors have, that they're going to use at the trial. Um, and prosecutors are required to turn over anything that might exculpate or um, be beneficial to the defendant. Right. right. Um, discovery can also include depositions, which is when the defense attorney is going to have an opportunity to interview um, witnesses on the record, sworn under oath, and it'll be transcribed. The standard for a criminal case is it's the highest standard there is beyond right. a reasonable doubt. Right. Um, we say the only thing short of that is no doubt. Right. Um, so. The prosecutors are always mindful of their standard of evidence that they're going to have to prove in order to get a jury to convict, because that's ultimately the goal, is a jury conviction. Right. Um, so there are occasions when the case ends up um, being dismissed by the prosecutor. In my office, that was fairly rare. We wanted to really do that work up front to make sure we were proceeding with cases that could go to trial. Mm -hmm. And when there were weaknesses in our case, we were more apt to try to look at um, a plea or something of that nature right. um, that maybe neither side was totally happy with but could live with. Right. Um, so that would that would be our first priority before just simply dropping a case. Okay. So in the courtroom, um, these trials are almost always going to be jury trials. Um, so the first step is that the prosecutor is going to select the jury, and the victim won't be um, at this portion. Frankly, they won't really be in the courtroom at all except to um, provide their testimony. Right. Once they do testify, they can usually sit in the courtroom for the remainder of the trial if they want to. Mm -hmm. um, but before they testify, there's something called a rule of sequestration, which means that they don't want witnesses' um, testimony to be influenced by each other. So they don't want right. people who haven't testified yet to be sitting in there hearing what other people are saying. Right. So um, until a witness, until a victim testifies, they're usually not going to be in the courtroom for mm -hmm. all of the preliminary issues. Mm -hmm. On the day of uh, the victim's testimony, again, our office had um, that victim advocate that would be there with them. Um, they would have been prepared by the prosecutor ahead of time, typically walked through general questions that the prosecutors uh, plan to mm -hmm. ask. Um, and that really, that's kind of a prosecutor by pros prosecutor thing. Mm -hmm. I personally never liked to give people the specific questions I was going to ask them. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to know generally areas I was going to ask because I, I didn't want people to over-prepare and then be thrown off if right. something went astray. Um but then they would come in the courtroom. Usually our victim advocate would sit in the courtroom so that they would have somebody um, to be to look at, a friendly right. face to look at. And I always encourage them um, to really talk to the jury 
um, direct their answers to the jury and to the judge because those are the people that are really making up the minds. You don't want to be sitting there looking at your attacker, looking right. at the defendant, looking at their attorney. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, the thing that we try to prepare them for but really can't always be prepared for is the cross-examination by right. um, the defendant's attorney. Right. And that can be really difficult for the victims, that right. part, um, because they are really there to try to discredit their testimony as much as possible. Right. Typically, by the time they gave their direct testimony about what had happened, it was also emotional at that point. Um, and, you know, again, we tried to prepare them as much as possible for that cross-examination. Um, but I, I can't even begin to imagine what it, it is like to be discredited like that and, um, you know, be made to feel like what you're saying is dishonest in some way because it's it's so difficult to just come forward from the right. get-go right. and even get to that point where you're sitting in a courtroom. Um, and I think everyone is different. I have heard from some victims that it's actually quite empowering to sit there and tell their story right. to people. Um, right. It gives them that sense of self back. Mm -hmm. um, but for other people, it is quite a difficult experience to go right. through. Right. How often does it, how long does it usually take? I know it's probably based on the, the type of case or whatever, but for a, a victim to come and do their portion of questioning and cross-examination? It, it really depends on the case and how detailed it is. Mm -hmm. I would estimate a half day to a day mm -hmm. of testimony. A lot of them do plea out ahead right. of time. And out of the date, the forcible rape, adult forcible rape situations were usually a, a bit easier to convict. Mm -hmm. um, the date rape really does come down to a lot of times, unfortunately, a he, he said, she said situation. Right. right. Um, and one of the biggest problems, I think, in taking cases to trial um, has really been the effect of shows like CSI <laughs> and things like that, where they're showing all of this like voodoo right. evidence going on, and we don't have those things. There's not a computer that you can, you know, submit a fiber to, and it tells you that a shirt was purchased in New Hampshire or right, something of right. that nature. Those oh, things what? don't exist. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so when you do have the cases where your evidence is really testimony, you do yeah. have some jurors that don't want to believe that that's really evidence. They want that physical evidence um, to point to. Right. So that's really the difficulty with the convictions on, you know, what is commonly known as the date rape type right. scenarios. Right. When it comes down to a trial, for example, though, it really depends a little bit more on what the jury feels consent is right. and where that that moves on the on the line. Oh, so literally it's for the prosecution or the defense to try to define it for them and what they believe consent is, essentially. So the sentencing process, typically sentencing is going to be set for um, a different day um, unless there is, it's a crime where there's a mandatory sentence that needs to be imposed. Sometimes the judge will um, impose the sentence immediately after the trial, but typically it's set for a later date. Um, victims do have the opportunity to talk um, and are encouraged to. A lot of them find that healing. You can prepare a statement. Um, it's called your victim impact statement, typically, mm -hmm. is what it's called in most jurisdictions. And it's your opportunity to tell the judge how this has impacted your life, how this has changed your life in any and all areas. Um, it's also your opportunity to 
you know, tell that perpetrator, you know, how you feel about them. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it depends on the jurisdiction and the crime. Um, some of them have mandatory sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, some vary. A lot of times the prosecutor will talk to the victim about what sentence or range of sentence they feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But ultimately the sentence comes down to the judge. Mm-hmm. Um, so the prosecutor can make a recommendation. The defense can. They can even be in agreement. But the judge ultimately can do what right. they feel is appropriate. Reading um, cases day in and day out, it gives you just a totally different perspective on society. Right. Um, it's no longer this thing you hear on the news that happens oh, way over there. Right. It's happening right in your community, and you actually know all the gory details. Um, and so I found my, myself affected by a lot of different cases, not just the sex crimes cases, but... Um, there's a part of you that I think just does kind of shut down a bit and mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm a much harder person mm-hmm. since being a prosecutor. Um, nothing shocks me. Um, I deal with education law now. I deal right. with a lot of schools. Um, and when I'm training um, administrators, I actually have like to tell them about my background because I, I tell them, when you call me and tell me that something horrible happened in your school, don't expect a big reaction from me <laughs> um, because I've right. seen and heard way worse probably. Oh, right. um, but, I mean, yeah, you, you you end up kind of shutting off a part of yourself and losing a part of yourself. And, um, you know, I saw a lot of colleagues that, um, you know, would drink heavily, mm-hmm. um, develop drinking problems. Mm-hmm. Um, it can take a... a mental toll on somebody doing that kind of profession day in and day out. That brings us to the end of our interviews, but we still have some more for you listeners after one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Before we close out, we wanted to let Justin tell you where to find him. If people want to talk to me, um, I do a bunch of different things. So um, I teach multidisciplinary teams. Also, people who are not in the system, I can help explain in bright colors and (laughs) four-letter words what happened. But I explain between the two. And if you want to know more about the actual brain science, I have people that can do that, too. But really, for good understanding, I train that. Mm-hmm. I train strangulation investigations and domestic violence investigations. Um, and then I consult. So a lot of the consulting looks like um, going through, uh, starting a um, project here soon in Worthington, Minnesota, where they received a federal grant to go through their report system their training and their police department is concerned and spend a lot of time and change out policies and do training. That's really cool. Um, so I do that. I review um, police reports and investigations um, if people need that. Uh, a lot of times I will be able to depending on the information they give me, will review their investigation quickly 
and give them a 10,000 foot view of what I think. <laughs> if they want a written report or anything else like that, sadly enough, I do need to change, charge for some of my time. <laughs> of um, but civil attorneys as well, sometimes um, if they pay for the report, the other stuff uh, would come on the side on the other side. Um, but I do that. I also keynote. I'm also just about finished with a book Ooh. of change within the modern uh, special victims unit. Well, um, certainly my email is it's Justin at JustinBorman.com. My um, my website is JustinBoardman.com, so that's pretty easy. Yeah. Um, you can type in Boardman. You can sometimes you can search under trauma-informed investigations. I might pop up there. Uh, that sort of thing. That brings us to the end of this, our bonus episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Yeah, we also want to thank both Justin and Samantha for taking time to speak with us and being a part of this really important conversation. Yes, yes. And thank you for joining us again, Samantha. Thank you. Aww, Fanny, for letting you. me be here. Now we're stuck in a loop of thank yous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And thank you to Andrew Howard, our producer. Thank Thanks you. to the listeners for listening. Thank you. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 